You're listening to audio from Harvest Bible Chapel, Philadelphia, where we believe in preaching the authoritative power of God's Word each and every week. For more content and information about our church, visit harvestphiladelphia.org. All right, good morning, church. Uh, We're going to be in the fifth book of the Bible, Deuteronomy chapter 6 this morning. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. Our ushers will grab you one. You can keep that one. It's a gift, um, so we'd love for you to have your own version. But uh, Deuteronomy 6, starting in verse 1. But uh, my name is Josh Cushing, uh, and along with uh, Eric Fry, who will be up here in a moment, we serve as two of our lay elders here at Harvest. If you don't know, uh, my wife Sarah and I uh, run our student ministry program here uh, at Harvest, and Eric, if you also don't know, has three teens, so he will do his best not to embarrass them. We're excited to be able to dive deep into God's Word around a particular section of Scripture that's near and dear to both of our hearts uh, in Deuteronomy 6, and that's the idea of teaching our children diligently. Um, That being said, before um, we dive into that, kind of a little bit of a disclaimer. If you don't have children right now, you don't want children, uh, or you just think children are scary, which sometimes they are, um, please don't tune out. Because as you'll see, uh, there's a very clear responsibility that you have as well, uh, and there may be a quiz later on. So before we dive in, we're going to open up in prayer. Father, I just ask that Eric and I would be able to be out of the way of anything that you want to do today. Um, Have your Holy Spirit move in our hearts and ignite a passion for us to take your word and commandments seriously in our lives, in the lives of our families, that you would teach diligently Um, and allow us to teach diligently the next generation. We ask this all in your name. Amen. All right, so Deuteronomy 6, uh, chapter 1. But before we start that, I actually have a couple questions for you guys. So for those that are current or future parents, if you knew you only had a year left to live, and you were only able to pass on one thing and one thing only to your child, what would it be? So if we were to ask, you know, around the neighborhood. Uh, Maybe it's the ability to fix a car, change a tire. Maybe it's how to cook more than just grilled cheese. Maybe you want to teach them how to do a handyman skills and use a miter saw effectively, which I just learned for the first time a couple weeks ago. Maybe you want to teach them another language or at least how to have grown-up conversations. Maybe it would be athletics or sports game, dancing, singing. You want to teach them style, grooming. Uh, Perhaps you want to teach them how to get a job and move on or um, study hard and get good grades how to be a gentleman or a lady or share with others. Um, Personally, if I ever have a daughter, I'd want to teach her self-defense. Before you ask, I would probably teach Josiah self-defense eventually, but right now I just picture him trying to keep his balance and then a little kick, and I'm like, that's self-defense enough. Um, But whatever you're going to pass on, whatever your legacy is going to be, you will pass something on to your kids. The question is, will you pass on what matters most, or will you drop the baton on the most important thing, because the things that we listed don't matter at all when compared to eternity. And so what we want to learn as we dive into this text in Deuteronomy 6 is what do we need to do, how do we need to do it, and why do we need to do it? Because we need to be passing on our faith to the next generation. And I'll give you the answer up front. It's that we need to teach them diligently lest they forget. So Deuteronomy 6 verse 1. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land which you are going over to, to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God and your son and your son's son, 
by keeping all his statutes and his commandments which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them. If you're like me, you're probably asking the question, why right about now? Doing all these commandments would be life-altering. So why would Israel want to obey all these laws and live lives completely different from the rest of the world? Well, Moses goes on and he answers that. He says that it may go well with you and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. And Eric is going to hit on the why a little bit later, but if we desire to see strong spiritual links in the chain and pass our faith on as spiritual fathers and mothers, let's ask the question, what do we need to do? So we pick it up in verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. By way of a little bit of background, in the previous chapter, Moses has just provided what we call the Ten Commandments. And in a couple chapters later, he's going to continue to provide additional commandments. In total, it's about a little over 600 additional commandments from God. And these will be a blend of ceremonial, civil, and moral laws. But in this section, starting in verse 4, we see what is known as the Shema. This would later be central to Jewish life and would be recited at least two times a day during the morning and evening prayer services. Aaron, keep me honest on that, right? Okay. The word Shema in Hebrew, or we translate it as listen or hear, that hear, O Israel, it doesn't just carry around the context of hearing with your ears, but it also conveys the idea of hearing and responding. So it's the idea of obeying. So we're going to go through this passage again, but we're going to go down verse by verse and kind of go through it, uh, and then we'll give it over to Eric to continue on. So in verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. This verse probably sounds a little bit familiar, right? Because in Matthew, uh, a lawyer asks Jesus the same question. He says, what is the greatest commandment? And in Matthew 22, Jesus says to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with your mind. This is the great and first commandment. These passages show us that God is not just a God like the other nations. He's a personal God. He's an intimate God. He wants to have more than just an emotional response. But this love is an active decision and devotion. He is asking us to love him with all of of our heart, soul, and might. This is a lifelong pursuit of holiness and seeking after God. And if we're honest with ourselves, we probably fall short of this every single day. Um, We could spend the rest of our time reflecting on just this verse. But given all that we want to cover today, um, this is going to have to be homework. So what I do is I'll encourage you, take this verse home, reflect on it, pray through it, uh, memorize it, contemplate it for the rest of the week. Um, But we just, this is such an awesome verse. But we're going to continue on in verse 6. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Similarly, you cannot pass on what you do not know. You can't teach your children diligently God's words if his words and commands are not on your heart. If you're not abiding in God yourself, and you are not loving your God with all your heart, soul, and might, like we read in verse 5, in which I'm encouraging you to read and memorize uh, this next couple weeks, is you cannot expect your children to suddenly desire to do the same. 
I know that after reading this passage um, prior to Josiah was born last year, I was hit by the immensity of what this was asking. So how am I supposed to teach Josiah right from wrong? How am I supposed to train him up in righteousness without being able to point him back to Scripture and to what God said about the matter? Because it's not my authority that I tell him no. You know, when Sarah or I, he's starting to fuss and he's starting to be a little bit, you know, upset and get angry and frustrated, and we say no, can we share with him how in James it says to be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God? Can we do that in a way that he understands it? Likewise, when he grows up and we, you know, he's responding with a wrong tone, can we teach him and say, you know, a harsh word stirs up anger, but a soft answer turns away wrath? Can we be able to pour into him um, from God's word around the reasons why he shouldn't be responding in a certain way or not? And this should encourage us and it should convict us to be memorizing scripture more deeply. So that way in 2 Timothy it says to preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, to reprove, to rebuke, to exhort with complete patience and teaching. Um, you know, I read uh, two years ago as I was kind of preparing and thinking through Josiah coming into the world and being, trying to teach him diligently. Uh, Pastor Scott actually recommended this book called Teach Them Diligently by Lou Prilio. And I would strongly recommend you to pick it up and read it. It actually goes through how to use scripture effectively in training uh, and discipling your children. And so, you know, God has given us as parents the authority and the responsibility to teach our children who God is and what he has done for us. And so, we have to teach him. We have to be the ones to teach them, you know, that Jesus came and he died on the cross for their sins and for ours. How we can then live our lives to give greater honor and glory to God because of what he's done and through the power of the Holy Spirit. And this does not shift predominantly to be Pastor Matt's responsibility on Sunday morning. And your children are here in the audience and you're like, good. It's not my responsibility anymore. It does not shift to be the teachers in the back when your kids are back there. That's not their primary responsibility. The same, if your teen comes into student ministry, that is not my primary responsibility. We are all responsible, yes, and we're going to dive into that a little bit later, but that is not our primary responsibility. That is your primary responsibility as their parents. And so we're going to dive into that again um, for what that means for the church. But for right now, let's look at verse 7. It says, you shall teach them diligently to your children. So now this version, uh, there's other versions that translate this as repeat them again and again to your children or impress them into your children or recite them to your children. But the words teach them diligently is actually one word in Hebrew, and I can't say it, but it basically means the idea of to wet. And so, uh, if any of you are familiar with uh, the idea of knife sharpening, uh, so I have carving knives here, um, just because I like to carve, if you don't know that, uh, and I have a whetstone here. And so a whetstone is just basically, you know, a fine-grained um, piece of stone. And in order to wet something, you're literally taking the blade and you are striking it again and again and again. Hopefully I didn't just ruin that knife. And that's the idea that we should be doing. We should be teaching our children consistently, constantly. We should be sacrificing, and we should be intentional in how we do it. And if we do, and our children still walk away, or we don't do that, and our children walk away, there is grace. And Eric is going to be able to unpack that a little bit later on. But we are commanded to teach them diligently regardless of their response. And we see this idea conveyed in the remainder of the verses 7 through 9. 
and how diligently we should be. I'm just gonna go through and ask a couple questions as we go through each of these, but it says, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. So sit in your house. Do you read scripture with your children at breakfast? Do you ask questions about the Bible at lunch? Do you ask them about their real life experiences and discuss them in the light of what they know about God's character and his, and his word? Do you unpack the themes they interact with in their entertainment? When a theme in a book, show, or movie pops up, do you push pause on life and help them think through what they're digesting? Does God come up regularly in your daily conversations, or does it only come up when you're occasionally doing family devotions or before you pray for a meal? Walk by the way. You know, so in addition to asking obvious questions like when you go for a walk around the park or the neighborhood, do you talk about God? Walk also speaks to your life, your way of life. And so the idea being, it begs the question is, you know, what will your kids experience as they walk and they live with you? So what atmosphere will your kids be raised in? Will they bump into God consistently as they do life with you? Or will they only bump into God once a week um, for an hour at church? You know, as parents, we need to set up a lifestyle where our kids are constantly bumping into God and engaging with him. This could be through church, books, prayer, friends. You know, but also what's important is the atmosphere they experience these things in. Is it an atmosphere of anger, grumpiness, and strife? Or is it of peace, love, joy, forgiveness? If they connect your faith with constant strife, anger, and bitterness, or fear, that will have a huge impact on whether or not they even want to take the baton. And when we lie down and when we rise, so when they go to bed, are you asking them about their fears, their hopes, their dreams, and how God plays into them? When you rise in the morning, do your children catch you praying? You know, my mom probably doesn't remember she's here in the audience today, so everybody say hi, mom. Thank you, guys. You guys are good. Um, you know, she doesn't remember, but I remember many times I would walk into my, my dad and my mom's room, and I'd walk in, and I would see them reading their Bible. Now, typically, I was walking in just because I wanted to tell a funny, dumb joke from a horrible joke book that I had, or whatever the case may be, and they'd promptly shoo me back to bed. But I remember my parents reading the scripture. I remember walking in on them while they were doing it. I remember their Bibles would be by their nightstands. You know, that type of thing I secretly want Josiah to catch me doing, you know, in my life. I look forward to the day where he comes down and he sees me reading the Bible or praying for him or something like that. And so I'm very excited to be able to do that. But when we think about the phrase, when you lie down and when you rise, what part of the day does this leave out? It doesn't, right? It's all-encompassing. That's on purpose. The lifestyle, atmosphere, and experience your children grow up in needs to be one where they are constantly engaging the Lord. You are to model for them what it looks like to live with God. What will they think about when they lay down? What will they look forward to when they rise up? Will God be a part of that, or will he just be an occasional add-on? Verse 8 says, You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on doorposts of your house and on your gates. So this one is, you know, maybe, maybe not as practical, but we'll try and make it a little bit more practical to our daily lives. Um, we tend to decorate the things that we love. So whether that's, you know, our homes with pictures, whether that's our car with bumper stickers, you know, tattoos, pictures around your desk at work, stickers, doodles covering every inch of your binder at school, you know, whatever the case may be, you know, what is in your home, for example? So are there pictures of family? Is there heirlooms that you have hanging? Is there trophies in a case? Is there, you know, shots of all your hobbies and things littered around the, the thing? 
Have you enshrined your devotion to the Lord in the same way in your home? So is Jesus and the Word of God clearly your first love? And that doesn't have to mean that it's chintzy or cheesy, um, but do your kids have a sense that God and His Word is central to your life? So practically, I have good news for you. Uh, There is now a Hobby Lobby here in King of Prussia. Right? Exactly. So now you can go to church seven days a week. Between Chick-fil-A, between Hobby Lobby, and between here at Harvest, you have all seven days covered. You're good to go. And now, you know, I'm not trying to say that, you know, there's, there's a lot of different things there, right? So there's pictures, there's beautiful pictures of verses, there's things that you can get, you know, when you walk in and you wipe your feet, it's got a Christian reminder on it, whatever the case may be. There's those type of options now available. And I'm not saying that Sarah and I are completely killing it in this area, but we are frequenting Hobby Lobby now. And we do have uh, Be Strong and Courageous painted on our wall now. So you guys have a lot of catching up to do, right? (laughs) Now, in all seriousness, though, while verse 7 and 9 might look slightly different and unique in your own home, we are commanded to teach our children diligently regardless And I hope that you can see the intentionality and the pervasiveness in how God is commanding us to teach our children. So, all right, uh, I told you that Eric and I wouldn't just talk to parents uh, this morning, and so we do want to kind of hit on the responsibility of the church as well. And so, for those in the church that presently do not find yourself being biological or adopted parents, uh, and even those of you who are, I want you to hold your finger here and turn to Titus chapter 2. And we'll see how we're able to also teach them diligently, because you can very much be a spiritual father or mother. So Titus chapter 2. All right. Everybody there? All right, actually, before I jump into two, let's actually look at chapter one. I'm going to cheat a little bit, and I'm going to prove out the point. Uh, Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promises before ages began, and at the proper time manifested his word through the preaching with which I have entrusted by the command of God our Savior. Here's the point. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace with God. Uh, the Father in Christ Jesus, our Savior. So we see that Paul is considering Titus his spiritual son. So we don't know what Titus's family was like. Uh, we do know Timothy had a godly uh, mother and a godly grandmother, um, but we don't know that from Titus's perspective. But we do know that Paul was instrumental in Titus's life to the point where he said that he was his true child in a common faith. We don't know if that was because uh, Titus was saved and came to Christ through Paul's work, or if it's just the level of discipleship that he had. But let's go into chapter 2, and we're going to see you know, what that may have looked like. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. This is in verse 1. Uh, now verse 2. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-control, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to be much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, 
working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be models of good works, and in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that it may, cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything that they are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. So we see here that older men and older women are to live godly lives as examples to the younger in faith. The reality is that not all children, not all teens, not all young adults are probably going to have godly parents that show them how to do this. Um, so for example, you know, I know that my dad, he did not. Uh, I remember hearing stories uh, where my dad would just tell us that, you know, his, my grandfather would come home angry, drunk, ripping off doors, throwing them down the stairs where my dad and his siblings hid. Um, similarly, you know, my grandmother would leave them in a car to go into somebody's house and just start drinking. And then they would just, after a couple hours, decide, okay, we're going to get out of the car and we're going to walk home. And so that is obviously not a very good generational thing to leave on for the next generation, but he had a godly influence in his life. He had a man named Dave Wiley who poured into him during college, and if we open the floor, I'm sure many of you would be able to name a mentor in your own life who encouraged you to walk closer to God. If we look at verse 3 and verse 4, there's two words that are used here, and they're different. It says to teach and to train. The word teach has a more informal context, while training has the idea of a more formal process. And we should be looking to do both in how we teach others diligently and how we mentor others. So, you know, I, I remember a gentleman named Andy Vassell when I was growing up, and he was probably in his mid-20s, uh, early 30s, uh, when he started inviting me over into his home to do a Bible study. And, um, you know, it started out more formal, but it actually became more informal. He would just invite me over, and we would play Mario Kart for hours. And... I have no idea how he knew all the maps. Um, you know, that was probably way more than he should have known, uh, considering he had two small kids and probably very little sleep. Um, but he would always beat me. And I just remember we would just talk. And he would open up his lives. You know, we would, we would have dinner together. He would share food with us and, you know, uh, with me and, and his kids, obviously. Um, and it's just kind of that old saying that there's more caught than taught. Uh, if we look back at, at that whole section that we just read, a lot of it is not necessarily just teaching verbally, right? A lot of it is, who are you? A lot of it is that idea of you are already this way, and so you're modeling it as an example. But, you know, if we flip back to Deuteronomy 6, we can see that the context is clearly familial, but it also extends to teaching diligently the next generation of Israel as a whole. And similarly to us as a larger church family. So we still have a responsibility to be living out our faith and to be mentoring and discipling others as we are able and as God gives us opportunity, even if it's not in the context of a true parental uh, child relationship. So with that in mind, I'd love to directly encourage you, you know, pray about pouring into the life of a teen or the life of a young adult or the life of a young married couple in you know, your small group that you find, if you're an older couple. Um, give time so that you and your wife can pour into them separately and together. You know, teach them diligently by both your words and your example out of a heart that loves your God with all your heart 
and with all your soul and with all your might. And on a side, you know, if you think about uh, and you want to, and you, as you're praying and everything like that, and you want to be able to pour into a teen's life, um, Sarah and I would love uh, to talk with you. We've been praying about you. Um, and we know that a lot of the parents would as well. And so after this, all this talk about teaching our children and the next generation diligently, we have to ask ourselves a couple of questions. You know, so what? You know, I'm sure there's someone here who's thinking to themselves, well, my kids are in really good shape. They're super well-behaved. They get good grades. We have a good relationship right now. So why would I need to do anything differently? Uh, Deuteronomy seems a little bit extreme. It's Old Testament. And so, you know, why do I need to do what Israel was called to do, right? Um, so it doesn't necessarily matter as hard if I, if I go that hard after what Israel was told. Well, I'm excited to be able to hear from Eric Fry uh, as he explains the answer to the text and that question, so what? But before we do, if you had any of those thoughts fly through your head, um, I just want to take a moment uh, and pray for you specifically that God would give you clarity and motivation to do hard things if needed. So, Father, I just ask that we would have humble and soft hearts to see from the text why teaching our children diligently is so important to the next generation uh, for their good and for their walk with you. I pray this in your name. Amen. Eric? Thanks, Josh. So as Josh said, but so what? Why does it matter if I don't teach the next generation? What's at stake? If you flip back to Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 9, it says, Only take care and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things your eyes have seen. If we look at chapter 4, verse 23. Take care, lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God. If we flip forward a little bit to chapter 8, verse 11. It says, take care, lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes. And if we go back to our text that we've been in, chapter 6, look at verse 12. Take care, lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. So what's really at stake? Lest we forget. Look how many times we're warned not to forget why is God warning us? Well, I don't know about you, but I'm pretty forgetful. I'm really bad at remembering things that have to do with the calendar. Um, it's easy for me to forget my anniversary. It's easy for me to forget my kids' birthdays, my parents' birthdays. I definitely don't remember my friends' birthdays. Well, there's one birthday that's easy for me to remember, Lexi's. It's 4404, so that one's pretty tough to forget. My wife, Shelly, on the other hand, is very good at remembering things that have to do with the calendar. But she can never remember where her car keys are. And I think the only reason we have a home phone is so she can call it to find where she's put her cell phone. Can you relate? I'm thinking I'm not alone in this, and we can all admit that it's pretty easy for us to forget. So let's look back at the text, Deuteronomy 6, 10 through 15. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give to you, 
with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, then take care, lest you forget the Lord, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. For the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God, lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and he destroy you from the face of the earth. So where have the Israelites been? They've been slaves in Egypt. Exodus tells us that they were afflicted and oppressed. The Egyptians ruthlessly made them work as slaves. They were beaten, malnourished. Their children were thrown in the Nile to drown. But God heard their cry and rescued them. But a short time after they were rescued from Egypt, they became afraid and would not follow God into the promised land. So they had to spend the last 40 years wandering in the desert. They were eating manna and quail day after day after day after day. But now was the time. God was about to bring them into the promised land. If we look at verse 10, it tells us that they were about to inhabit cities they didn't build. They were going to live in houses they didn't construct. They were moving into a land that was full of all the things they would need. These homes were full and furnished. They were filled. Think of it. They'd been living in tents in the dirt and dust, taking down and putting up their tent city. But now they were moving into McMansions. Imagine it, fully furnished home, 55-inch OLED TV on the wall. A refrigerator's full, silverware in the drawer, probably Egyptian cotton sheets on the beds. The fields and orchards are planted. So I looked this up. It takes three years before you can harvest grapevines after you plant them. It takes five to 12 years before you can harvest olive trees. They were moving in and the work was done for them. The food was on the table and there was more in the fields ready to be picked. They went from poverty to prosperity overnight. But what's God warning them about? Verse 12, don't forget the Lord. Did they deserve all these good gifts? No. The Lord's rescued us from slavery as well. We were slave to sin and darkness. Do we deserve God's grace? No. We deserve death. But by faith we've been saved. We've been adopted. We've become children of God. But what's the risk that we face? I think we can all agree that we live in a pretty prosperous country. We live in prosperous towns. We likely didn't build the homes that we live in. We didn't plant and grow the food on a farm that we eat. Now, granted, we likely work hard to pay for all these things, but I think you get the point. We live in prosperity. You guys can pick up the phone right now in your seat and summon someone, and in 20 minutes, they're going to bring you pizza. Not very good pizza, but pizza nonetheless. So what's the risk? What's God warning us about? That in the midst of the Lord's blessings, we will forget the Lord. If we forget the Lord, are we reminding our children, our grandchildren, the teens, the youth in the back hallway, 
Are we reminding them that by faith they can have salvation? The Lord's commanded us to teach the youth, to teach the next generation. When we forget the Lord, are we in the word? Are we going to small group? Are we praying? Are we working for the Lord? Are we witnessing to the lost? If we're not doing this, then we're not obeying. And guess what? Our children, our grandchildren, our nieces, our nephews, the youth, the teens in our church, they're watching. If we look at verse 14, it's warning us what will likely happen when we forget. It says, you shall not go after, sorry, you shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. What are the gods that people around us worship today? When you forget, you will go after these gods. So what does our society worship? Materialism, pleasure, pride, sexual addiction, drunkenness, getting high, self-reliance. The list goes on. God has delivered us out of the kingdom and sin and death just as he rescued Israel out of Egypt. Church, I think we can agree, this is heaven and hell stuff. When we don't teach the next generation, it forgets. When we don't teach by example, when we don't obey God, the next generation forgets. So if you keep a finger in Deuteronomy 6 and turn over to Psalm 78, I'm not sure if it's up there. Yeah, it's up there. All right, it says, Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old. Things that we heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from our children, but tell the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach their children that the next generation might know them. The children yet unborn and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God but keep his commandments, and that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. We need to be faithful to this command, lest they forget. If we flipped a few books forward from Deuteronomy and looked at Judges chapter 2, verse 10, it says that after Joshua died, There arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. I think the church in the U.S. can safely say that today. In the book Soul Searching, The Religious and Spiritual Lives of American Teenagers, they found, quote, The majority of teenagers are incredibly inarticulate about their faith, religious beliefs and practices, and its place in their lives. The de facto dominant religion among contemporary U.S. teenagers is something that they call moralistic, therapeutic deism, which means a God exists who created and orders the world and watches over human life on earth. God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other, as taught in the Bible and most other world religions. The central goal of life is to be happy and feel good about oneself. God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. And 
good people go to heaven when they die. Another study by LifeWay Research found that 70% of teens will leave the faith in college and only 35% will eventually return. In Josh McDowell's book, The Last Christian Generation, they found that 63% of quote-unquote teenage Christians don't believe that Jesus is the son of the one true God. 51% don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead. 68% don't believe the Holy Spirit is a real entity. And 33% of churched youth have said that the church will play a part in their or have said that the church won't play a part in their lives when they leave home. I think this last statistic shows that these youth were lost way before their teenage years. Now I want to have a sidebar. So, church, do we save our kids? No. Are we responsible for teaching the next generation? Yes. Who saves? God saves. Ephesians 2.8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and it is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. We can do everything right. We can obey God. We can teach our kids. But it is them alone who have to accept God's gift. It's their responsibility to trust in the Lord for the forgiveness of their sins. We need to pray that God will change their hearts, that they will realize they are sinners, and that they will repent and follow the Lord. I want to be very clear on this. We don't save our kids, but we do need to be an example by obeying God and teaching them. We know there are people in our church right now whose kids aren't walking with God, and some might look to Proverbs 22.6, which says, Train up a child in the way he should. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. But that's not a guarantee. Proverbs are prescriptive, not predictive. Again, you do not save your kids. I'm going to say it again. You can't save your kids. My own sister walked away from the faith when she was in high school. This is very hard on my parents, as you can imagine. It's also hard on our family as well. We continue to pray for her, but unfortunately, as of now, she's hardened her heart to the gospel. But my parents continue, and we continue to pray for her. Parents, you need to have grace with yourself. So I'm going to say it one more time. You cannot save your kids, okay? But church, we need to obey, and then we need to teach, lest they forget. Church, we've been brought out of slavery and delivered into luxury. We've been redeemed. We need to teach the next generation what the Lord has done, how he died for their sins, that they might have eternal life. If we look what Jesus said in John 14, 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Let us not only show the love of God or show our love to God by obeying him, but let us show the next generation as well, lest they forget. So as Josh said, now it's time for the quiz. Just kidding. Here are some practical ways we can apply the, parent, the text. So parents, again, as Josh said, be constantly look, looking for ways to teach your children about God when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise. Show your kids how mighty and wonderful our God is. Aunts, uncles, grandparents, 
Look for ways to teach your nieces and nephews and your grandkids if you have them. Now, you might just have a little bit of time with them, or maybe you have a lot. In that time, use it to teach them how great our Lord and Savior is. You can obey this this command with your nieces and nephews, your grandkids. And now for everybody, we can all help teach the next generation, even if we don't have children in our immediate family. You can teach with Harvest Kids on Sunday morning. And you don't need to have the spiritual gift of children's ministry. You just need a passion to pass on your faith and pass it on to the next generation. So don't put this off. You can go right after service and talk to Amanda, and she'll help get you plugged in. You can also find someone in your small group, find someone to disciple. And as Josh said, find a youth to mentor. Talk to him after. Find a youth to mentor. And then now to the youth. I'm going to encourage you to keep, keep reading your Bible app that Josh has got you guys hooked up on. Even if you've gotten behind, don't give up. Keep pushing forward. I challenge you to ask questions of your parents. I also challenge you to set a goal to read the entire New Testament or even the entire Bible before you go off to college. Time goes by fast, trust me. So start now. Church, let's pray. Lord, We do not save our kids or the next generation, but your word clearly tells us that we are responsible for obeying your commands and then teaching the next generation so they don't forget how mighty and how wonderful you are. I pray that they would hear it from us and that we would show by example. You command us to do this lest we forget. God, I pray you put this on our hearts and that we don't walk out these doors and by the time lunch is over, we've already forgotten. I think all of us want our kids and the kids in this church to know and follow you. Stir in us a passion today, Lord. Help us to obey you in this. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this audio from Harvest Bible Chapel, Philadelphia. For more audio, content, and information about our church, visit harvestphiladelphia.org.